This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 19th, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Mike Price talks with us about the origin of the prestigious Fields Medal. Julia Dressel talks with us about the science of recidivism. Computers and algorithms are no better than people at picking out who might commit crimes, but they are used for many important decisions in the criminal justice system. And Jen Goldbeck is here with this month's book segment. She talks with Paul Shapiro about his book on clean meat, how growing meat without animals will revolutionize dinner and the world. Now we have... Mike Price. He's here to talk to us about a strange change in the path of the Fields Medal from its origins in 1936 to today. Hi, Mike. Hi, Sarah. How are you doing? Good. Thanks. Okay. Why don't you start us out with what exactly the Fields Medal is? The Fields Medal is a prize given to mathematicians under the age of 40 every four years, and there are four prizes given, and it is meant to award promise and achievement in mathematics. One of the things that you make this distinction about in your title is that the Fields Medal is not for geniuses. Why is that something that we're talking about? Sure. So uh, one of the interesting things that's happened to the Fields Medal over the years is that it's grown in prestige. And so back in 1936, no one would have referred to it as the Nobel Prize of Mathematics. It wasn't thought of in that way. Right around 1966, there was this shift where the organizing committee wanted a lot more public attention for the award and started advertising it as something like the Nobel for Mathematics and started courting the press and, and really started making a much bigger deal about it. And so there were some uh, some questions about the original intentions of the award, about whether or not it was ever supposed to go to the brightest and the best in the field under the age of 40. That's the other thing about the Fields Medal is there's an age restriction on it. Or whether or not it was intended as uh, something to help up-and-coming uh, mathematicians that hadn't necessarily crested in their career yet, hadn't, hadn't done as much as they could. And so this is not something that's actually easy to know because 
all this deliberation is sealed uh, for 75 years. So how did people kind of get some traction on figuring this out? One of the interesting things about the Fields Medal Award Committee is that they don't want everyone to know exactly why they're picking who they're picking for various uh, political reasons within the field of mathematics. They don't want to be showing favoritism to uh, certain fields over others or certain institutions over others. So they keep their deliberations uh, pretty secret. So one of the first windows that anyone has ever seen into the early deliberations of the the Fields Medal uh, came when this historian of mathematician, uh, Michael Barony, uh, who's at Dartmouth College, he was studying the life history of this mathematician named Laurent Schwartz, who actually won the Fields Medal in 1950. And as he was researching this guy's life at Harvard University, he came across a file in the Harvard University Mathematics Department's departmental archive and found a folder labeled uh, International Mathematical Congress. And he was like, what is this? And he opened it up and there were the very first letters with official deliberations that anyone had ever found regarding the Fields Medal. So when you look at this, does it match up with how people perceive the medal today? No, it doesn't actually. So nowadays, along with the Abel Prize, the Fields Medal is considered the the top prize in mathematics. And it's given to people who are generally recognized to be at the forefront of the field that are doing really cutting edge uh, mathematical theoretical research and are really at the top of their game. When you look back at what these letters suggest, when you when you have uh, the deliberations within the committees, you see a couple things. One of them, you see them really emphasizing the fact that they are not looking to award people who already have recognition in their field. They, they pointedly skip over certain people that are already doing well, that are already famous, and sort of say, those people don't need our help. We're going to focus on the young up-and-comers. And the other thing that you see is that there's these sort of personal opinions of the committee that get folded into these decisions. So the committee chair in 1950, this guy, Harold Bohr. Bohr, B-O-H-R. Exactly. Harold Bohr, who was the committee chair in 1950 and was the brother of Niels Bohr, who won the Nobel Prize uh, in 1922, had a personal favorite among the nominees that year. And uh, his personal favorite was Laurent Schwartz. They both shared this penchant for promoting mathematics to the public and really trying to get the public on board with math. And Harold Bohr saw Laurent Schwartz as the sort of fresh face of math that he could promote to the public. When the list of nominees came up, there was some discussion about whether or not the award should go to uh, someone like Laurent Schwartz, who was sort of young and up and coming, but hadn't really peaked in his career yet, or it should go to a couple other people, one of them whose name was Andre Wheel. Andre Wheel had a couple things against him uh, as, a, as a public face of mathematics. One of them was that he was a little old at 43, which the committee was a little leery of, of awarding someone that old. And then the second thing about Wheel was that during World War II, he had skipped military service and had gone to prison for that and had actually done a lot of his mathematical work that he was known for while in prison. And some of his peers kind of looked at that as cheating a little bit because he didn't have anything else to do. So he just did math. So for personal reasons, Harold Bohr wanted someone like Laurent Schwartz to win, who was a good public face of math, over someone like Andre Wheel. 
But instead of coming right out and saying that, he and some of the other committee members promoted the age angle and mm-hmm. said, well, really, we shouldn't focus on someone who is as old as Wheel. We should focus on young and up-and-comers. But really, he had a vested interest in wanting Laurent Schwartz to win for this other reason. This is very esoteric stuff, right? The kind of math that's being looked at, the, this is a very high-level award. But what we're really seeing here is a lot of behind-the-scenes, you know, mundane concerns. It shows how small this world of mathematics is. One of the committee members in 1950, not the not the chair of the committee, but one of the committee members was a man named Lars Alfors, who won the very first Fields Medal in 1936. So he was on this committee um, in 1950, and he had won the very first one. So he had some interest in promoting people like himself that were sort of continuing in his tradition. There's actually a second set of these deliberations that were found for a different year. What What did they reveal? Another person who was nominated in 1950 who who didn't win, who was also considered a little too old, uh, was a man named Oscar Zariski. Uh, and Oscar Zariski was at Harvard in 1958. And Michael Barony, the historian of mathematics that, that wrote up this whole thing, found some more of his letters from Harvard that shined even more light on the uh, Fields Prize. So we also have deliberations from 1958. And those show kind of a similar thing happening where people are, the, the committee members are favoring younger people over older people and are favoring people who haven't yet peaked in their careers over people who have already had a lot of success. And that, interestingly, it turns out, is looks like why the famous American mathematician John Nash didn't win in 1958. He A lot of people thought that he would. He himself thought that he probably was going to win a Fields Medal in 1958 for some of the work that he had done on differential equations. And of course, John Nash's life was dramatized in A Beautiful Mind. He actually came in third place in votes, and they only gave the award to the top two. And uh, the committee members revealed it was because they thought he was already too famous at that point. Yeah, he didn't need the medal for the boost. Um, yeah. What about the Fields Medal today? I mean, I think there'll be one this year. The last one there was in one this year. 2014. Is the emphasis the same these days? From everything that I've heard from talking to people, uh, no, the the award has kind of done a 180, and now there's a lot more focus on accomplishment as opposed to people that are still up and coming. So whereas the award was, seemed to have been created to promote up-and-coming scientists who, who were still growing in their accomplishment, but now the Fields Medal is a lot more like the Nobel, where it's awarding career performance and people that have already succeeded quite a bit. Anything else come out of this scavenger hunt through these papers? Kind of sandwiched in between the committee's deliberations were some other notes about the logistics of putting on the awards ceremony for the Fields Medal. And one of the things uh, that became very clear in the letters was how concerned they were about impressing their European colleagues who were going to be coming over to America and and seeing how, how they did things here. And they were extremely disappointed that the Boston Symphony turned down their invitation to play at the at the award ceremony. So it just kind of goes to show you mathematicians are people like everyone else. They're looking to impress their peers. They're looking to promote their own agendas. Yeah, they're human. All right. Thank you so much, Mike. All right. You're welcome, sir. Mike Price is a freelance science writer based in San Diego. Also on the site this week, you can find stories on the future of pancake syrup under climate change and a muscular mayfly that has arms like airplane wings. On Science Insider, our policy blog, you can find stories on tensions over electric fishing in European waters and South Korean universities' new agreement with Elsevier after a long standoff on libraries' access to digital materials. 
Stay tuned for an interview with Julia Dressel on predicting criminal recidivism. It turns out computers aren't really better than people at predicting who will offend again, but are still used by courts in many important decisions. In a Science Advances paper this week, Julia Dressel and Hani Farid look at recidivism prediction, figuring out the probability that an individual would commit a crime after already being punished for an earlier crime. Co-author Julia Dressel is here to talk about measuring the accuracy and fairness in the algorithms in use today. Welcome, Julia. Hi. Happy to be here. Uh, so can we talk about, you know, when I say the algorithms in use today, how is this type of recidivism prediction used in the criminal justice system? There's software that is used before someone's trial to try to predict whether they should be out on bail or not, to predict if they will not show up at their trial. There's software that tries to predict whether someone will recidivate if they're out on parole. So there's a lot of different ways that there's algorithms used within the criminal justice system to try to predict the behavior of a criminal defendant. Your study focuses on one particular system called the COMPASS system. Do you know how widely that's used? Is it used just in the U.S. or in other countries as well? As far as I know, COMPASS is only in use in the United States. Uh, it has been used on over one million criminal defendants since it was invented in 1998. You looked at this widely used system and uh, compared it with a number of other methods of predicting uh, recidivism. In one case, just asking random people what they thought would happen. What did you find out when you talked to people or when you surveyed people or when you used, you know, different approaches to modeling recidivism? We had human observers who were recruited through an online survey marketplace these observers read short descriptions about criminal defendants and then were asked to predict whether or not they thought this defendant would commit a new crime in the future. We compared those predictions with Compass's predictions on those same defendants. These were real defendants who had been convicted in 2013 or 2014, had been assessed by Compass, and then we have data as to whether or not they actually recidivated in the years to come. The human observers were able to achieve the same accuracy that Compass achieves. How, how accurate is Compass and how accurate are these people? Yes. So on our data set, Compass was 65.2% accurate and the human observers were able to achieve 67% accuracy. Okay, so really not a lot of space there. And then another thing you looked at was how many data points are needed to make these kinds of predictions at that level of accuracy? Uh, how many does Compass use? And, you know, you didn't use many in what you shared with these people. Yes. The Compass algorithm takes into account 137 different variables about a criminal defendant. And our human observers only saw seven facts about a defendant before making a prediction, and they were able to achieve the same accuracy. We also looked into what the minimum number of variables an algorithm would need to achieve the same accuracy as Compass, and we found that a very simple classifier that only looks at a person's age 
and the total number of prior convictions on their record can achieve the same accuracy as Compass. That's pretty stunning. So what does it mean for those institutions that use these systems? I mean, the accuracy isn't that high, and the algorithm isn't doing much better than a randomly selected group of guessers. I think that in its current state, recidivism prediction needs to be reevaluated to see whether or not there are actually variables that are very predictive of recidivism. Because what we found was that the human observers were able to reach around 65% accuracy. Compass is around 65% accurate. All of the algorithms that we built ourselves were able to reach around 65% accuracy. And so something that our studies suggest is that maybe there's no way to achieve a higher accuracy than this. We are not saying that all of artificial intelligence or all of machine learning within criminal justice should be completely scrapped. Mm -hmm. Absolutely not. I think that there are uses where it can be helpful, but I think we need to take a step back and understand how these algorithms are working, if they're actually offering an advantage over human predictions. And we need to ask these companies that provide these black box algorithmic services to be transparent about how their algorithms are being made and how their algorithms are actually faring in terms of accuracy. I wanted to circle back to the beginning of this, which is, you know, this system compass, this this idea of making predictions about recidivism. Why are we using algorithms for that? If any person could probably figure this out, is it supposed to be less biased than human judges? So people hear words like big data and machine learning and artificial intelligence and often assume that these methods are accurate and unbiased. And I think that that is the intention within the criminal justice system is to help judges with a tool that's supposed to be more accurate than their own predictions and more objective than their own predictions. And ideally, this would be great. But as this study shows, these algorithms aren't always more accurate than human predictions, and they aren't always more fair than human predictions. So I think what's important to think about is how are these algorithms built? Are they actually superior to humans? And maybe how can we build them better to be superior to humans? Or how can we rethink about what we're trying to predict? Okay. Julia, thanks so much for coming on the show. Julia Dressel and Hanny Fareed write about recidivism prediction algorithms in this week's issue of Science Advances. Up next is our monthly book segment. Jen Golbeck interviews Paul Shapiro about his book on clean meat, how growing meat without animals will revolutionize dinner and the world. Hi, everyone. I'm Jen Goldbeck, and welcome to the January 2018 book segment of the podcast. Maybe your New Year's resolution included eating less meat or maybe even going vegetarian. As a decades-long vegetarian myself, I'm always interested in discussions of where we get our food and how science can make that food better in whatever way. So I was intrigued by this month's book, Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner and the World. Paul Shapiro discusses the technology and business of growing real meat in the lab and how science may transform the way we eat. Paul, it's great to have you with us. I loved your book, and I found a lot of surprises in there. And one thing I hadn't thought about is how the technology to grow meat in the lab is directly tied to our efforts to grow organs and other medical replacement parts in the lab. 
Yeah, you're hitting the nail on the head, Jen, in that the technologies that are being used by the clean meat startups really were pioneered in the medical space. In fact, it's not a surprise that two of the people who founded these companies were both medical doctors who had a lot of experience in this realm beforehand. And both of them basically felt like they could see in heart patients that if you take stem cells and inject them into the heart, that the heart regrows its muscle tissue. And they thought, well, if we can grow muscle tissue inside of the body, maybe we can also grow it outside of the body. And that's what got them thinking about these types of advances. And the science has now come to such a point where, indeed, we can grow real muscle, meaning real meat, outside of the body. Another part of the book that I was surprised about is that the industry thinks instead of starting with burgers or chicken nuggets, they might start with leather. Yeah. So think about it. A lot of people might have some reluctance to eat what they would consider to be novel foods, whereas uh, very few of us have that type of a connection to what we wear. Uh, we're quite happy to wear new novel materials uh, like carbon fiber or Gore-Tex or whatever. And so there are some like at a startup called Modern Meadow, whereas now they're focused exclusively on growing leather, both because they think there'll be higher consumer acceptance and because it's just easier to grow skin than it is to grow muscle. So there's something of an ew or weird factor to lab-grown meat for a lot of people, which you sort of alluded to with that leather discussion. Do you think that's something we can overcome? Well, I would think about it this way. Most people right now eat meat not because of how it is produced, but rather in spite of how it is produced. Uh, so when you think about just how inhumane and unsustainable and unnatural our current methods of meat production are, all of a sudden, clean meats and plant-based meats, for that matter, seem just naturally preferable. But I'll also just tell you a brief story about this that I think about often, which is that in the 19th century, we had a huge natural ice industry. Huge blocks of ice were carved out of northern lakes in order to ship them around the world. Well, that was a big industry back then. And then enter the advent of industrial refrigeration, and all of a sudden, you have a much more efficient way to get ice, mainly just by cooling the water right in front of you down. Well, the natural ice industry was livid over this technological innovation, and they railed against what they called the artificial ice industry, saying it was unnatural. You didn't know if it was safe. There was a huge ick factor to it. And the irony at the time was that actually the natural ice was far less safe because it had not only pollution in the water, but also uh, horses who were being drawn out of the wakes didn't hold it in while they were pulling the, the ice out, whereas uh, so-called artificial ice is being cooled from water that was boiled or otherwise filtered prior to freezing it. And you fast forward to today, and you know all of us have artificial ice makers in our homes. We, we call them freezers. And we don't think there's anything unnatural about it at all. In fact, we wouldn't even consider living without one. And so for us right now, it may seem like the idea of producing meat outside of animals might seem novel, and there might be that type of factor that you're referring to. But the same was so for for, uh, for making ice that wasn't naturally frozen. And now we all accept it and we don't even think there's anything unnatural about it at all. I, I suspect it's more likely that in the future that people are going to look back in a pretty shocked manner at how we treated animals who we raised for food and how they, we permitted them to be tormented in ways that few of us would really even want to bear witness to. 
What are the technical challenges that stand in the way of this ending up in my local Whole Foods? Uh, there's many of them. There's no sugarcoating it. So the first Queen hamburger that was produced was in 2013, had a price tag of over $300,000, the most expensive burger ever produced. Uh, now, though, they've got the cost down way below 80% of that just in a few years. At the same time, there's still a long way to go. So the biggest cost to producing these meats is the feed that the cells eat. So keep in mind, I mean, basically what we're talking about is taking some cells from an animal, from their muscle called satellite cells, and uh, putting them in a bioreactor or fermenter, if you prefer to call it that. And you make the cells think that they're inside of the animal's body, so they keep growing. What that means is that they need food just in the same way that they are fed when they're inside of the animal's body. Right now, because culturing cells for more than a century has been done using uh, serum, usually uh, fetal bovine serum, uh, that's the way that we know how to culture a lot of different types of, of muscle cells. Well, one, there's ethical concerns about using uh, fetal bovine serum, but also there's just huge financial costs. It's extremely expensive. And so the key for these companies to getting the cost down right now is essentially figuring out cheaper ways of feeding the cells. If you're right, this has the potential to be really disruptive. I think it's possible that because of both plant-based meat companies like Beyond Meat and others, and because of these clean meat startups that hopefully will gain more traction in the years to come, that you may see to the factory farming industry what happened to the horse-drawn carriage industry or what happened to the whaling industry, that industries that were based on the exploitation of animals went by the wayside because of technologically superior alternatives that science made possible. And that is, I think, the promise of this clean meat industry, that it has the ability to solve many of the most pressing sustainability problems that our species faces. And it offers us the ability to lead our lives in a way that has a much smaller footprint uh, than we have right now. Well, Paul Shapiro, thanks so much for talking with us. The book is Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner in the World, and it's out this month. That's it for January. We'll be back next month with another book for your stack. And in the meantime, we'd love to hear from you on the books blog of the Science Magazine website, Books at All. Thanks so much for listening. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. Write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site at sciencemag.org slash podcasts, where you can also find links to the research and news stories discussed in each episode. This show is produced by me, Sarah Crespi. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.